Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Andrea Velasquez. Andrea is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Colorado, Denver. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jen, for the invitation uh, to talk about my research on crime. Today, we're going to talk about your research on how violent crime affects people's attitudes toward risk. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Yes. So my interest in research and specifically in research on crime started when I was a graduate student in Colombia. uh, That is my home country. And as a graduate student there, I had an opportunity to work with Ana Maria Ibáñez on research projects aimed at understanding both the causes of the long-lasting Colombian conflict and also the effect of public programs targeted at the victims of violence, particularly targeted to force displaced individuals. And that was a very important experience for me and pretty inspiring because I saw a room for rigorous research to inform policymaking and potentially improve people's well-being. And that was the experience that motivated me to pursue a PhD in economics. And uh, then like, I came here at Duke and I had another great opportunity to work with uh, Duncan Thomas, who was actually collecting data of the third wave of the Mexican Family Life Survey. And I'm going to talk more about this data since it is the one that I that I use in this particular paper. So this is a nationally uh, representative longitudinal survey of the Mexican population. And the third wave, uh, the data was being collected between 2009 and 2010. So this is when I start to work with him and I get the opportunity and the support both uh, of him and the PIs in Mexico, Graciela Teruel and Luis Rubalcaba to go to Mexico and to travel with some of the teams and survivors to um, help them and support them to track and reinterview the most difficult cases. And that was a great experience because already in 2009 and 2010, the country was experiencing this spike of violence that I'm going to talk about. And when I was in Mexico, I was able to witness the consequences of this violence. So For example, while we were trying to track households in some towns or cities, the interviewers could tell me how they saw the differences in these cities. And something that is that was very cool is that these interviewers were the same ones that were conducting the interviews uh, five years before. So they would tell me, look, this environment has changed completely. Now we are in a town that after sunset, everything is closed down. People are telling us, go back to your hotel. And before they would tell me people were outside, businesses were open, restaurants were open. People also, when they were feeling comfortable with us, would tell us about the fear that they would sense in the environment and how things were changing the community. And that was the motivation to say, okay, we have the data. We have this arguably quasi-random variation in violence. I want to answer rigorously what is the economic consequences of this violence. And that is what I have done in part of my research that has focused on understanding these economic consequences of violence on labor market outcomes, human capital accumulation, health outcomes, and particularly the paper that we're going to talk about today, risk aversion. Yeah, so your paper is titled Impact of Violent Crime on Risk Aversion, Evidence from the Mexican Drug War. It's co-authored with Ryan Brown, Veronica Montalva, and Duncan Thomas, and it was published late last year in the Review of Economics and Statistics. 
So let's start with a basic economics question. What is risk aversion and why does it matter? So risk aversion, just like the name says, uh, denotes attitudes toward risk. So your just willingness to take risk, how, how willing you are to take a risk. And there is a broad literature in economics showing how these, these preferences toward risk influences important choices over the life course. And importantly, these choices can have long-lasting effects on an individual's socioeconomic status, health, and well-being. So, for example, these studies have showed that attitudes towards risk are associated with decisions like like getting or not insurance, savings and investment decisions, even occupational choice and for farmers, uh, crop choice or uh, technology adoption. Also decisions about migration. So anything where you see like some uncertainty, this willingness to take some risk can affect that decision, those behaviors, and therefore that can have long lasting effects on like the economic and health well-being of the individuals. So there is a consensus on that, on like, look, your attitude source towards risk are going to affect these behaviors. These behaviors can affect your well-being. But if these preferences have such an important effect on an individual's well-being, it is important to understand what are the determinants of these attitudes. And it's in that sense that it's less consensus in the literature. In fact, implicit in many economic models is the assumption that risk attitudes are fixed or stable over the life course. From this assumption of economic models departs research in uh, psychology that assumes that these attitudes or preferences react to an individual's environment or circumstances. And this is where our paper and now a growing literature in economics comes to the scenario. And now we have a new research in economics that is particularly investigating whether an individual's environment or circumstances can affect those risk attitudes. So there's a growing literature showing how, for example, exposure to earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, so natural disasters overall, or violence can affect these risk attitudes. I'm a development economist, um, so I'm like in the uh, intersection of labor and development. And as a development economist, this is particularly important given that both natural disasters and outbreaks of violence um, have disproportionately affected individuals in developing countries. This is the big picture of why we care about trying to figure out what are the determinants of these risk preferences. And then why might violent crime in particular affect people's attitudes about risk? What potential mechanisms should we have in mind here? Yeah, so this is very important to understand because and, uh, in order to, to try to say something about policymaking, we need to understand what is the mechanism through which this relationship is operating. And the literature helps us to, to understand how we need to think about these mechanisms. And the first one is, if we think that there is uh, an environment with high levels of violence, you are going to have some individuals that are going to be directly exposed to violence. And individuals who are going to be directly exposed to violence might suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, which can affect their mental health. If we see like this, this effect, this could affect aversion towards risk. And there are two papers that have made important contributions to understand this mechanism. One is a paper uh, by Andres Moya that investigates the effect of violence on risk attitudes in a group of individuals who were directly victimized in Colombia. And he finds that 
among those individuals who were directly victimized, risk aversion is going to increase. But importantly, he has suggestive evidence showing that this effect is driven by anxiety disorders. So this tells us something about policy implications, particularly for Colombia. So if we think about reparation, then how we need to think about policies that are going to try to repair the damage of the conflict in, in victims, we need to think also about those psychological effects and how could help them to get out from the effects of that shock. And similarly, there is a paper by Michael Cullen, Isaac Sade, Long and, and Springer. This is in the AER. And they explore the impact of violence in Afghanistan. And interestingly, on average, they find no effects on risk aversion. But when individuals are primed to recall a fearful experience that they had in the past year, they show an increased preference for certainty. So this is like a first mechanism that tells us uh, the effect of trauma can have an important effect on risk aversion. And here I want just to do a little detour, given the current circumstances that we are living with COVID, because when we think about trauma and the effect that this can have on risk aversion, the literature has explored not only the effect of violence on risk aversion, but also, for example, exposure to a financial crisis or of financial experiences in early life. So for example, Mal Mendier and Nagel have a very nice paper where they show that exposure to financial experiences like the Great Depression in early life can affect investing behavior in later life. So when we think about what we are experiencing now, it would be interesting to try to figure out like exposure to COVID and uh, how exposed you have been to it can that affect certain behaviors and can that affect like some, I don't know, health outcomes or even like in investment in the future? If you are like more cautious about the future, if your optimism or changes because of this exposure. Another mechanism is fear. And this might be more relevant to our context because as I'm going to discuss later, when we measure violence, we are not going to measure this as direct exposition to violence. So I don't have direct victimization. I'm going to have homicides in a, in a municipality. So fear might be more relevant in our context because measures both uh, potentially direct exposure, but also indirect exposure to violence. And living in an insecure environment could manifest into fear which can affect, again, optimism about the future and risk aversion. In uh, trying to understand the mechanism of fear, um, there is important studies by Lerner and Keitner that explain that the lack of uh, control associated with fear can lead an individual to make uh, risk-averse choices. Another potential pathway is financial. And my own work has found that the violence in Mexico had a negative effect on labor outcomes, particularly among self-employed workers. And previous studies in economics have shown that there is like this uh, link between income and risk aversion. So that could be a pathway that particularly could, could work in Mexico. And finally, uh, living in a violent environment has the potential to adversely affect physical health. And this could be through various channels. That could be through, of course, direct victimization. It could be through stress or uh, reduced access to healthcare. And uh, 
recent studies and uh, work that also we have conducted in Mexico have shown that actually exposure to violence in Mexico has affected health outcomes, particularly blood pressure and heart disease. So this could be another potential mechanism through which we see this effect on risk aversion. So just to summarize, we have this uh, trauma, fear, financial pathway or health. Great. And you mentioned a bunch of other studies in there, but I guess summarize in in one place or elaborate a little bit more. So before you all started this study, what did we know about how crime affects risk aversion? Actually, this was a when we started to work on this was the perfect timing to work on this question because there were these two very influential papers that were the one that I was telling you of Kalen. This is in Afghanistan. And there is another paper that is by Vors and co-authors and they examine the impact of a civil war in Burundi. And what is interesting and why we felt we could make an important contribution is that both papers tell a different story. So... Just to remind you about the other paper, the one in Afghanistan shows, on average, no effect on risk aversion. But if we prime individuals to recollect a fearful experience, then certainty is going to be preferred. Now we're going to see a context of like civil war in Burundi. So the civil war in Burundi lasted between 1993 to 2003, and they're going to ask about risk aversion in 2009, so six years after the end of the civil war. And in this case, they find actually that um, exposure to violence increases risk tolerance. So a completely different story. So these were the papers that were out there, and it was, as I was telling you, the timing was perfect because at the same time, Andres Moya was working in Colombia with direct victims of conflict and Jackiela and Ozier were working in Kenya with like the Kenyan Life Panel Survey and like and a strategy that, that is, I think, is the closest to our paper. So we didn't know that much. I mean, the, the Kalen and Wars were there and uh, other papers were happening at, at the same time. And there was mixed evidence. So we come up to, to the scenario we are not going to look at direct victimization. We're going to see at this, like the average exposure in, in municipalities. And we have this unique survey that is going to allow us to compare the same individual during low levels of violence and high levels of violence. So we are going to bring something to this mix that is we are going to be able to control for this unobserved heterogeneity that other papers haven't been able to do that. And we're going to try to figure out if that can explain some of these differences. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Why was it so difficult to measure the causal effects of crime on risk attitudes? Was it really a data problem or an identification challenge or both of those things? Yeah, so the problem is we want to know what are the determinants of risk aversion. So we need to have a shock or something that is going to induce that change. So if we think... Precisely about, we want to know how violence affects risk aversion. We need that shock, right? Otherwise, we are going to have individuals that are going to self-select into places that have more or less violence. So if we have an environment in which, I don't know, maybe they have a long-lasting conflict or violence has persisted for a while, then we think that there's there are going to be behavioral responses to that violence. So we could think that the most risk-tolerant individuals are going to self-select into living into 
places with high violence, and then we're going to see a biased result. So that is the basic problem. So then what has done the literature? The literature has tried to find these local area shocks, such as floods, earthquakes, uh, violence. But now the problem is that whether these are really shocks or not, could they have been predicted or not? Were they really unexpected? Um, So I think we need to try to figure out, okay, is a cross-section going to be able to capture the effect of this shock? Is a cross-section going to be enough to try to disentangle behavioral responses selected migration into these places, unobserved heterogeneity at the the individual level? Are the shocks that we are using really these unexpected shocks that we can argue give us this quasi-random variation? On the other hand, you need like this shock to happen, but also you need the survey, right? So you need the survey that measures these risk preferences. So everything kind of like needs to align that align very well for us, for students. Yeah. So you're going to use the Mexican drug war as a natural experiment to see how people's risk attitudes change when they experience an increase in local violent crime. So tell us about Mexico's war on drugs. What is the policy change you're interested in and how did it affect violent crime across the country? Yeah, so if anyone is interested about this, I really recommend looking at the work of Eduardo Guerrero Gutierrez, Molsan, Rios, and Shirk. Melissa Del has made an important contribution, Castillo, Mejia, and Restrepo. And actually, there is a new book by Guillermo Trejo and Sandra Ley that explains the political logic of criminal wars in Mexico. So there is a huge literature trying to understand uh, the causes of, of this increase in violence. So I will just summarize this, the story of like uh, the narrative of some of this work that I have just told you about. So one strand of the literature explains this spike of violence. And let me just give you a, a background so you can see the map in your head. So just imagine that you have like the years and you have homicide rate. And uh, from the 90s to 2007, There wasn't a positive homicide rate. I mean, drug cartels already existed in Mexico. So there existed an homicide rate, but it was pretty stable. So there was like this oligopoly of power between the cartels that were in Mexico. So you see, if you plot the homicide rate, you see like something very stable. And then in 2007, you see this spike of crime. And actually, if you still see it, if you plot it until uh, 2020, you see that they haven't been able to go down to those initial levels of violence. So, of course, there's a lot of literature trying to explain what happened, what explains this spike of violence. And one strand of the literature explains this spike as a byproduct of the military strategy that was implemented by President Felipe Calderón when he became president in 2006. So he becomes president in December of 2006 and in 2000. Seven, he implements this military strategy of uh, confrontation with organized crime groups. And the idea was to target the main leaders, the capos of the cartels, with the goal of destabilizing the old oligopolistic equilibrium that existed, like with the organized crime groups and the government. And the thing is that if you see the map, you see that like it was pretty stable and you see that in 2007, like the first military strategy was pretty successful. 
And then it was like, okay, we did it with this cartel. Let's go with all our force against all the cartels. And that's where things started to, to become very messy. So what Eduardo Guerrero Gutierrez explains is that when you confront the main leader of a drug trafficking group, you can create two types of violence. And this is what is, is seen in Mexico. The first one is that within the cartel, an internal conflict is going to arise. Because you can think about like this pyramid of power in which you have the leader, but then come like three people, let's say. Once the leader is gone because he was either incarcerated or because he was killed, then these three people are going to contest for the power. So you are going to see this conflict within organizations to try to take power on the cartels. And second, you are going to have confrontations with enemy organizations that seek to wrest territorial control. So what we see between 2007, the beginning of the spike of violence, and 2010 or 11, is this huge increase on homicides. So we see this temporal variation, but also geographic variation. And this is key for our identification strategy because we see this temporal variation, but also now the violence is spreading to municipalities that before had not seen drug-related violence. And we see also that the number of cartels multiplied uh, from 9 in 2007 to 16 in 2010. And in that sense, um, Viridiana Rios has very nice work explaining the location of the cartels and mapping the cartels out. So... Another thing that is important too is that the dynamics of violence also changed between 2007 and 2010. Before you had like nine big cartels that the main financial resource was financed by drug business. But now since you start to have like smaller cartels, they also start to uh, rely on uh, other times, that types of crime. So at the same time that you see that homicides are increasing, we see that also other types of crime is increasing, like kidnappings, extortions, and car thefts that are going to target civilian population more directly. Another thing that is important to highlight about this period, and I don't know if you remember like the news when this was all over the news when we were seeing what was happening in Mexico, is that narco messages started to be a very popular method to signal territorial presence of a cartel in an area and to spread fear. So you would start to see these narco messages that the bodies displayed out there. So the idea was precisely to spread fear, not only across other organized crime groups, but also to authorities, journalists, and any citizen that wouldn't support uh, the actions of that particular cartel. In addition, there was a lack of trust in the state's institutions and the high levels of corruption and abuses from the police also exacerbated that uh, sense of fear by the civilian population. And that's why, like with everything that I'm telling you, that's why also trying to understand fear as a mechanism has been um, so important in all of our work. So that is the natural experiment. That series of events is creating new variation in the timing and geography of violence. But then, as you said before, you also need data and you have this great survey. So tell us about the data that you're using in the study. 
So in order to measure violence, we are going to use homicide rates. So if anyone is interested in doing, in pursuing a research agenda with this, all the data is publicly available. These are homicides that are available in the National Institute of Statistics and Geography. And this is going to be homicides at the municipality and month level. So we have that part of the violence. But now we need to match that with risk aversion and ideally with a data set that is very rich on uh, observed characteristics of individuals and households. And that is where the Mexican Family Life Survey comes very handy. So this is a longitudinal survey and I, I was telling you it's representative of the Mexican population at the national level. And uh, the timing is, is very important for us. The baseline was conducted in 2002. The second wave started in 2005. And importantly, in 2005, questions about risk aversion are being asked. And the third wave started in 2009. It was on the field from 2009 to 2012, but uh, like 95% of the uh, surveys uh, happened between 2009 and 2010. So we are going to have this survey that is going to follow the same individual and we're going to have information about the same individual during low levels of violence in 2005 and high levels of violence in 2009, 2010. MXFLS is going also to collect important information of socioeconomic and demographic indicators. So we are going to be able to control for a rich set of characteristics, both at the individual level and household level. Okay. And then how do surveys like this measure risk aversion? Could you give us some examples of those questions? Yeah. So and uh, something that has been established in this literature are um, is a survey method in which uh, these are going to be all hypothetical questions in which like respondents are going to choose between uh, gambles that are going to have different payoffs. So the idea is that you are going to have options that offer higher expected payoff and those higher expected payoff are associated with graded risk. So just to give you an example, and importantly with this, these are questions are all hypothetical. These are not lab questions, so we are not going to provide any monetary like reward. So the first thing that we want to make sure is that people understand the gambling because sometimes people don't understand really well like the, what is the idea with the expected utility or the risk. So in MXFLS3, we have like in, in the third wave, we have a question in which we're going to say, okay, look, Jen, I'm going to offer you two gambles. In one, you are going to receive either $250 or $500 with equal probability. So you can play that game or you can have a dominator sure amount of uh, $250, right? So that case is just like, look, this is just gambling. And here is just to make sure that they understand that what the gambling is telling you. So if the responder preferred the later, then we explain the question again. <laughs> right. So basically what's going on here is you've got, you can get $250 for sure or a chance of getting higher than $250. And so that first one is what economists would call the dominant choice, where it's like a clear winner if you understand the game. So this is basically checks whether they understand the game. Exactly. So we wanted to make sure that this is not going to give us too much noise. And then we, okay, we explain again. And from the people that had chose the 250, the dominated option, like two thirds go to the gamble. It's like, okay, great. If you stayed 
by Gamble Lovers, then we're going to call you Gamble Lovers and you're going to be the most risk-averse individual. You might be worried about these individuals, but they are only 7% of the population, of the sample. And uh, we have tons of robustness checks, like having them as Gamble Lovers or just completely just dropping them from the sample and everything is robust to that. So let's just go with, okay, what happens if you want to gamble? So here the idea is that every time I'm going to tell you, look, you are going to have this dominated option of the 2,500, but I'm going to give you a gamble in which now the risk is going to be higher before it was between 250 and 500. If you want to gamble, then you are going to move to 200 and 500. If you now want the sure amount, you exit and I'm going to give you a risk aversion like number, let's say. And just to clarify for folks again, so now the gamble, there's a chance you could get lower than the certain amount. And so the question is just like, how big is that chance or how much lower might you wind up? Yes. So if you want to keep gambling, every time I'm going to offer you a less attractive gamble. So if you keep playing, you are more risk-loving. So the questions continue, a few more questions, and then I'm going to generate the risk aversion index. And then we're going to have individuals that are going to be the most risk-averse and that like moves to the most risk-loving. Importantly here, you might think that, well... I don't know, you were not offering real money. This is super noisy. And you are totally right. And actually, there is a literature focused particularly on these questions and how maybe these hypothetical questions really are not measuring risk aversion correctly. So we were very lucky because in 2005, at the same time that that these hypothetical questions were happening, there was a parallel uh, study of uh, Amar Hamoudi that also worked with MXFLS and with Duncan Thomas. And they actually ran an experiment eliciting risk aversion in the same, in one community of the MXFLS where they give these uh, monetary rewards. And when they compare the risk aversion with the hypothetical questions and with the monetary one, they are very comparable. So that was like, okay, that made us feel really good about it. The other thing that we do to make you feel comfortable about these questions is that since the MXFLS has tons of information, we have risky behaviors or what you could think are risky behaviors. So for example, if we consider that occupational choice is a risky behavior, like there's more risk on being self-employed, then we're going to see whether there is a relationship between our measure of risk aversion and the probability of being self-employed. And there is. And this is all only associations, right? There's nothing causal here. We just want to know whether they are related. We also see women, we see risky sexual behavior. So whether they use contraceptives or how many sexual partners they have. And we also see the the relationship that we would expect. So we see that these hypothetical questions are related with real life, let's say, risky behaviors that also make us feel more comfortable. And the last thing that I want you to have in mind to feel comfortable with, like this measure is so important that you need to feel comfortable with, with how we are measuring it is that now you are going to imagine that, yeah, you have the whole sample and I'm telling you that I'm going to classify them, let's say, in six groups, depending on how risk averse they are. But 
Of course, like even now that I'm telling you, okay, what do you prefer? 200 or 250? What do you prefer? 100 or, or 250? You might imagine that people are just going to start to daydreaming and they're not paying attention anymore, right? And they're just going to answer whatever. So what we do is say, let's look at the extremes. We know that maybe between those in the middle, it might be very noisy. So we are going to look at the extremes. What is the probability of being the most risk others? And we categorize that as like the two last uh, groups or the last three groups. And as you can imagine, we run tons of robustness checks with that. We also actually use the linear version and uh, everything is uh, very robust to that. Great. Okay, so you have this panel survey data telling you people's risk preferences over a time period that spans Mexico's war on drugs. So walk us through what you actually do with this data to measure the causal effect of the change in crime rates on risk attitudes. Yeah, so everything until now, maybe with uh, all these questions was the complicated part of the paper, maybe. (laughs) But the empirical strategy, and this is something that I... uh, really like about uh, these papers is that the empirical strategy is very simple. And uh, as I was telling you, the idea is that we have this longitudinal survey in which we're going to follow the same individual. Uh, We observed the same individual in 2005, where the levels of violence were normal, let's say, so low levels of violence. And I'm going to observe the same individual with high levels of violence. So there is like this shock, and I'm going to say this is an arguably unanticipated shock that we are going to consider quasi-random. If this was unanticipated, then the effects that we are going to see in uh, risk aversion shouldn't be related to anything else. But what is cool about this survey is that I'm going to be able to control for any unobserved time invariant heterogeneity that could be related both with exposure to violence and with risk aversion. So this is a part that previous literature hadn't been able to tackle as directly because of lack of data, because they don't observe the same individual before the conflict and after the conflict. So now if you think about any, I don't know, maybe the ambition or uh, any unobserved heterogeneity that is time invariant that is related both with exposure to violence and risk aversion, we are going to be able to control for that. In addition, since we observe these individuals before and after, we are going to directly test whether there are behavioral responses such as migration and um, control for that. All right. So first, you analyze the data in the way that it might have been analyzed in the past by researchers who weren't able to observe people at multiple points over time, just to get a sense of how your results might compare and if they would look similar to what those previous papers found. So what do you find when you do that? Yeah. So what we do first is just trying to emulate as close as possible what the previous papers had done. So the first one that we do is like, okay, let's assume that we don't have a longitudinal survey. So let's say that we have only the 2005 data and we are going to exploit with geographical variation, right? And this would be in a setting where there is like long lasting levels of violence. And here the important thing is to think that, I mean, the levels of violence in Mexico before this spike of crime were very low compared to the homicide rates in the, in the region. But there was still like, if we, if we 
think about what was happening in Mexico, there was still presence of cartels. So we could still think like, yeah, there are like some level of violence. Even if we see the maps in 2005, you can see that there is like, there are regions that have more violence, uh, particularly through the drug corridors and where it's presence of cartels. So what we're going to say is we have like this environment where there's long lasting levels of violence. We want to see whether this exposure to violence has an effect on risk aversion. And when we do that, we see that exposure to violence actually increase risk tolerance. That is similar to the conclusions of uh, the paper of Vors and co-authors in, in Burundi. So that is where we start to think, well, yeah, but maybe this is all about selection into these places, right? It makes sense to think that individuals that are more risk tolerant are going to self-select into living in those places. And without a history of migration or without being able to control for these potentially unobserved heterogeneity at the individual level, we don't know um, what is driving this effect. So that is like the first piece of evidence. Then we say, okay, maybe you might be uh, concerned about this comparison because, okay, maybe the violence in Burundi was very different to the levels of violence in Mexico. We need to try to exploit this increasing violence. So maybe we need to, if someone would do this in Mexico without a longitudinal survey, maybe they wouldn't do it in 2005. They would do it in 2009, where now they can exploit this increasing violence that, again, we are going to argue that is unanticipated. So we can think there is like this quasi-random variation. So that's what we do now. Okay, let's try to do this in MXFLS3. And in this case, we find no significant effects. So this is more similar to what Michael Cullen and co-authors had found, that on average, we see no effects on risk attitudes. And here, what we can think is that we could see like in this cross-section, we could have attrition because of non-response. We could also, as I was telling you, you can imagine trying to have low levels of attrition was a challenge and the buyers and the team in Mexico worked so hard to keep uh, low levels of attrition. And in many times, what we found is that people would say, look, I cannot answer now, but come six months later. And we would do it. Then the teams would go to other regions and they would go back. But if that person is systematically different, right? If that person is like saying like, okay, no, they just wait a little bit then we're going to have like some bias uh, results. So we need to control for that unobserved heterogeneity. Okay, so maybe we're going to have individuals that are going to choose when to answer these questions, but with a cross-section, we're not going to be able to control for this unobserved heterogeneity. What this longitudinal survey allows us to do is to say, okay, yes, you are answering in different times. We think that it's uh, selected into like both violence and risk aversion, but we are going to be able to control for that unobserved heterogeneity. And that is what these individual fixed effects do. That is just in other words, just saying, look, all your unobserved heterogeneity, everything that I cannot observe about an individual, so I don't know, your ambition or your intelligence, anything that is not measured by uh, these observed unmeasured characteristics, if we think those are time invariant, the individual fixed effect model is going to control for that. So if we think that these could potentially bias the results, we are going to find different effects. And that is exactly what we find. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let me just explain that individual fixed effect thing slightly differently. So basically imagine I'm in your survey 
you're talking to me at these like three different times, three different waves. So anything about me that doesn't change over time, those fixed effects are gonna are gonna be controlling for. So my general a whole lot of like preferences or my gender or those sorts of things are all going to be because you're looking like within me, <laughs> you're going to be comparing me to myself at previous times. It's much better than trying to like find similar people in a cross-sectional survey. Yeah, exactly. And I think what it, this is what we see as uh, one of the main contributions of the paper is that the data allows us to walk the reader through Let's picture all these different scenarios. Maybe the individual fixed effects don't, don't buy us anything. And that could be the case. But if they don't, then we should find consistent results. And we don't. So, so that tells us something about, well, in this case, there's something about this unobserved heterogeneity that is important to control for. And this is where like these longitudinal surveys are going to be very helpful. Right. Okay. So you add in these individual fixed effects. So again, you're considering the change in risk preferences for a specific person over time. And this is going to avoid the concerns about compositional effects or people moving and so on, like just as you described. So what do you find when you do that? So now we find that there is a significant effect on risk aversion, which is going to have, again, this important policy implication and uh, potentially long-lasting effects on the well-being of individuals. If we if we think about like all those potential consequences that have on decisions of investment and so forth, just to give you a number, if we think about the average increase in homicides between 2005 and 2009, it was close to one homicide per uh, 10,000 people. So for each additional homicide between 2005 and 2009, there is an increase in the likelihood of becoming the most risk averse, so entering into the most risk averse category. Uh, that likelihood increases by 1.5 percentage points that at the average of the uh, population of the sample is a 5% increase in the um, probability of becoming the most risk averse. And do your results vary at all across different subgroups? Yeah, so short answer, no. And we were, <laughs> super, we were so surprised about this because, I don't know, like working on, this, on these papers was very interesting because all of these papers were happening at the same time. I mean, we were working on all of these questions at the same time and this, I don't know, the creative process was so interesting because it was like, oh, there's this effect in labor outcomes in self-employed people. So... Of course, what is happening to the education of these individuals? And if they're self-employed individuals, this is what is happening. Oh, there's risk aversion needs to happen. Something needs to happen for them. So what we did was just trying to look at heterogeneous effects based on characteristics measured at baseline. So we are not worried that they are endogenous. So we looked at effects on by gender, by uh, socioeconomic status, by age, by the level of like urbanicity of uh, where they live, whether they are self-employed or not, because this is where we find uh, the larger effects on labor outcomes. And there's nothing. There's no differential effects. So of course, this is not a perfect test to look for mechanisms, but it started to tell us something about, well, maybe in Mexico is nothing related to this uh, financial pathway, maybe something else. This was like the first test to try to figure out. We see that there, there is this effect on risk aversion. It doesn't seem to impact some 
part of the population uh, differently. But why is this happening? Which is going to be so important to try to say something about um, policy implications. Right. So then you you dig in a bunch to try to figure out those potential mechanisms and what's driving that effect. So walk us through what you do there and what you find. Yeah. So this was empirically the most challenging part of the paper. And this was very, very challenging because what we want to try to test, let's use the literature and let's try to figure out, is this something related to economic well-being, uh, mental health, physical health, or fear? And something here that I want to highlight is that thanks to the, the survey having like this information, we were able to directly test whether these are potential mediators or not. So we have, of course, information about uh, labor outcomes and earnings, uh, per capita expenditure. We have questions that measure mental health, emotional status. We have physical health as well. We have blood pressure, but also self-reported health measures. And importantly, we have measures about fear. And we have those measures in every wave. So we have questions about direct victimization, but also perceptions of fear. So that's why we can test all of these mechanisms, which is very special. But now the challenge is that we can argue that there is a causal effect from violence to risk aversion because this change in violence, it is random. And I'm going to tell you more about why we can feel comfortable with this assumption. But the changes in the mediators, so the changes in um, economic well-being or mental health or fear, that is not exogenous, right? When it's a change of violence, who gets afraid or not, that is not exogenous anymore. So when I use that as a mediator, since it is not exogenous, you might think, well, this is all endogenous. You cannot say anything about causal effects. So that's what was very challenging. But let me tell you what we did. And again, this is the part of the paper that we say like this suggestive, but we do as much as we can to try to figure out whether we can disentangle this is the main mechanism. So the first thing that we do is something very simple that is just saying, well, does violence has an effect on these mediators? So for example, if there is an increase in violence, do I really feel more afraid? Or if there is an increase of violence, is my physical health going to be affected? So we do that for the mediators that I'm telling you about. Economic well-being, mental health, physical health, and fear. And we find significant effects only for physical health and fear. And here it's important to tell you to just to try to put all the papers together that when we look at the average effects on economic well-being, we find no significant effects. But because this is all driven by self-employed people, wage workers, at least in the short term, right? These are all short-term effects. We find no economic effects on uh, wage workers. So we find like a first evidence says like if there is an increase of violence, there is going to be a negative effect on physical health and fear don't seem to be affected. So then the next step is trying to say, okay, what if this mediator has an effect on risk aversion. So we are going just to run these simple regressions in which changes in these mediators have an effect on risk aversion. And in this case, we find that only fear has a significant effect on risk aversion. 
So then what we do is a fully interacted model that is just like stratifying. It's just saying, okay, what about people that have fear or no fear or uh, physical health? Let's try to see what is the effect now of uh, violence on risk aversion, uh, stratifying our sample or in a fully interacted model. And in this case, again, this shows that those are like suffering the, the, the higher increase on fear, those that the effect of, of violence on, on risk aversion is stronger for these individuals. So we have like this first piece of evidence that is highly suggestive that fear might be the most important mechanism. But again, we have this concern that these changes might be endogenous. So what we do next is complementing all of these estimations with a mediation analysis. And a mediation analysis is what we do is very intuitive. So the idea is the following. The idea is that in our main regression, we had a model in which we are going to have changes of violence explaining changes in risk aversion. So what you do is just you going to change your dependent variable and you are going to change it for a demiated version of it. So pretty much what you're doing is just saying, I have all the variation in risk aversion. Let me get rid of the direct effect of my mediator on risk aversion. So we have all the variation on risk aversion, and I'm going to take out the direct effect of fear of what I think is the mediator. So now I'm going to have only the part of that of risk aversion that is changing, but that is not related to changes in fear. And I'm going to run my regression and I'm going to do that for each of my mediators. And what is the idea? When I run this regression on, on each of these demiated versions, if I still find both a significant effect and the, and the magnitude of the coefficient hasn't changed, that tells you that it's not the main mechanism. But if you find that the main effect has gone away, that suggests that that is an important mechanism. So we do that for each of the uh, mediators that I was telling you about and for uh, economic well-being, physical health and mental health. We find that the effect of violence on this demiated version of risk aversion doesn't change. I mean, it still it has the same significance and uh, the magnitude of the coefficient doesn't change at all. But when we use fear... Uh, the significance goes away. And actually now the coefficient is only 12% of the original size, which is um, again, suggestive that fear is playing this important role. Now, this still is suggestive because this mediation analysis relies on two important assumptions. And the first one is that this mediator could be related with many other mediators, right? It couldn't be fear, it could be something else. But we couldn't come up with something else other than the ones we had tested. And again, we were lucky that we had the data to be able to test whether the other mediators were playing a role or not. So given that we tested this directly with the other ones and we didn't find any suggestive evidence that the other ones were playing a role, we felt comfortable thinking this is the only one that is, that is explaining. I mean, of course, if you think about something else, we could test it. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally understand all the caveats and cautions yeah. and appreciate them. But I found this part of the paper super compelling. I was convinced <laughs> by all of your analyses. Okay, yeah. So from there, you of course run several robustness checks to convince yourselves that you're isolating the effect 
of violent crime on risk preferences and that those results aren't confounded in some way by other factors. So tell us about maybe a, one or two of the, the things that you really wanted to check and, and how you did that. Yeah, so the first one is that I have been telling you from the beginning, this is arguably exogenous variation, but I haven't uh, talked to you about any empirical evidence uh, backing up that. So that is a key assumption, right? Is this really exogenous? Because you can think, look, people knew exactly where cartels were going to go. So all your idea that this is exogenous, I don't believe it, and this is key for us. So we are going to do two things. We're going to use... um, administrative data from the INEGI. They have a rich information at the municipality level. So we are going to use everything we can think about, like economic outcomes, socioeconomic outcomes, everything measured at the municipality level before the spike of violence. And we are going to see whether these predict the increase of violence. And we don't find any significant effect. The other thing is that you can think that these individuals, the the people that you see that risk aversion is going to increase, were already on a a trend that explained this risk aversion. So it wasn't violence, it was something else that was happening in their lives. What is good is that so far I have told you, look, we have also this data in 2002, we haven't used it so far, but now we can use it to create these pre-trends, pre-trends in, again, fear, economic well-being, everything you can think about. And I'm going to see whether these pre-trends are related with exposure to violence. And none of that is related to exposure of violence, which makes us feel comfortable about this assumption of the quasi-random variation in violence. Okay, so let's let's go back to the why does it matter question that I asked earlier. So why should we care that violent crime makes people more risk averse? Yeah, we should care because we have strong evidence that risk aversion is related to crucial decisions that individuals make that can have long-term consequences on an individual's well-being like savings, investment decisions, fertility, human capital, and uh, technology adoption. Now, when we see this relationship with violence, episodes of uh, high levels of violence have a strike like uh, developing countries, like low and middle income countries uh, particularly. And these are the countries that don't have perfect credit markets. So now if we see that there is this connection now out, there is violence that is going to affect risk aversion. And now you are going to be more, less willing to take certain risks these vulnerable individuals can end up in a poverty trap. And the problem is that when we think about policies aimed at at, at helping the victims of violence, we never think about this psychological effect. We never think about how can we help them because, I don't know, there was like a mental health issue or because now they are more risk averse. And this is just showing you there is yet another pathway through which conflict and crime can affect the well-being of individuals. So we think about how to help the victims and we think about policy implications in post-conflict or post-violence environments. This is a pathway we need to understand and consider. So this has all been your paper. Have any other papers related to crime and risk preferences come out since you first started working on this study? Yeah, so as I was telling you, many papers were happening at the same time which was very, very cool from a creative point of view to see all the other papers happening at the same time. 
I haven't seen so much on like violence, particularly on risk preferences. But there are two papers that I want to talk about that inform us on on, uh, this topic. And one is a very nice paper of Shanti Manian. She's an assistant professor at Washington State University. And she actually looks at the effect of the violence in Mexico. She uses another data set on risky health behaviors. So even though it's not risk attitudes, it is very informative and uh, compelling to our, our results because she looks at these risky health behaviors. And uh, she makes an important contribution to the literature because the canonical model predicts that when violence increases, risky health behavior should increase as well. And what is the idea behind this result? The idea is that, well, if you think that the chance of survival is going to decrease because you are living in a high level violence, then there are no incentives to take care of your health. So you are going to be more willing to take risks. But what she finds in um, Mexico, particularly using uh, data of, uh, she has a panel data of female sex workers in Ciudad Juarez, is that actually there is a reduction in risky sex transactions, which is consistent with the fact that risk aversion is increasing in Mexico. So I think this is a nice, uh, a nice paper that shows us that, look, these measures might tell you something important about our behaviors. And the, the effects of those behaviors is something that we need to understand better. And there is another uh, nice paper by Teresa Molina. She's an assistant professor at the University of um, Hawaii at Manoa. And again, she doesn't look at particularly violence on risk attitudes, but she looks at whether when violence increases in, in the Philippines, whether there is an effect on the utilization of curative and preventative care. Actually, what she finds is that when violence increases, the probability that a mother takes a sick child to a health facility decreases. What she talks about about the mechanisms is the fear, the fear of being harmed. And again, this talks a lot about, well, if fear is an important mechanism on risk aversion, and actually this is going to affect behaviors as like going to the doctor, this is going to have huge implications, particularly in developing countries where the use of preventive care is already so low. So if this is diminishing because of this pathway, we need to understand more of that. And we now we need to think about like, how do we help individuals in these settings? Yeah. Uh, so related to that, what are the policy implications here? What should policymakers take away from your study and other work in this area? That is a very challenging question because I think when we think that, I don't know, there are like more tangible things in conflict, right? I don't know, like if education is decreasing, then you can think about, well, if it is schools that, if it is the supply side, let's try to work on that. If it is the demand side, maybe a cash transfer could play this uh, interaction effect that is going to incentivize individuals to go. In this case, we are talking about this risk aversion. So I think, and this is something that I was telling you before, I think this has to push us to understand if we want to alleviate the effects of conflict and violence for the victims of it, we need to think about the psychological effects as well. We need to think about the effects on mental health. And overall, when I think about what we are living now with COVID as well, I have been thinking so much about this, our research on crime, because although they are completely different shocks, 
we can see similarities. We can see that there are effects on mental health. We can see that there are differential effects on the labor outcomes of women, for example. So these are all these uh, unintended consequences on the psychological effects and mental health that we need to understand better. And now we need to push towards how do we tackle that? How can we alleviate these effects? I don't know if we think, for example, in Mexico that this violence increased risk aversion, then we need to think about post-violence assistance programs that are aimed at helping individuals that now have a lower willingness to assume risky behaviors. So how to design those programs with that in mind, with having in mind that you have risk-averse individuals that are less willing to take certain risks. Right. So if you really want people to start businesses, say, or go to college or you know, a variety of other things that one could easily view as a risk in some way, you don't know what the payoff is going to be on the other side, building in more of a safety net maybe than you would have in the past might wind up being required. Yeah, super interesting. So what's the research frontier here? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about going forward? So I think it is very related to what we were talking about, about the policy implications. I'm totally passionate now about this new research that looks at, for example, the interaction effects of climate shocks and safety nets, for example. So I think we need to understand now what are the policies that could help and whether really there is an interaction effect here or not. So if we thought that this was driven more by a financial mechanism, Something that could be nice to see in Mexico that actually has been seen with climate shocks is whether individuals that have access to, to a safety net like, like Progresa, now called uh, Prospera, whether the effect for them is less strong, right? But now we need to think about the fear factor, the fear mechanism. So we need to think about like what potential programs could be given that have like this interaction effect. So I think what we need to understand is we have the short term. What happens in the long term? Are risk preferences really going to change in the long term? Or pretty much what we care about is that even if it was in the short term, there was a change in your behavior and this is going to drive these long-term effects in your well-being. And what are the programs that can help to alleviate that effect? So I think now it's like, yeah, we need to try to understand how to diminish that initial negative effect and what are the long-term effects. My guest today has been Andrea Velasquez from the University of Colorado, Denver. Andrea, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Jen. It was very fun. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoyed the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Haley Greasaber. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.